First Corinthians chapter two, and you could actually uh, just kind of browse and look back at uh, chapter one, verse seventeen. Uh, let's go ahead and read from one seventeen through two sixteen, and let's go ahead and stand up as we do that. First Corinthians chapter two, or go back chapter one, verse seventeen. It says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should be not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Lord God, as we dive into this chapter, just what an encouragement to those in ministry, to those that are hearing the call to be workers sent out into the harvest field. Lord, that you use the weak things of the world. You use the foolish things. You use the things that are not and the base things to put to shame the things that are wise and mighty and that seem to be. And so, Lord, would you just encourage us in that this morning, that we can rest in your power. Lord, as we carry a message that is known to be foolish and ridiculous to the world, Lord, we who are here and who are saved, we recognize it is power. It is the only way. And so, Lord, would you just equip us and empower us today to speak this mystery to the world. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. The reason we read chapter 1, verse 17 through 31 is because it gives us a good context to chapter 2, especially verses 1 through 5. Uh, We see this contrast between worldly wisdom, wisdom of this age, even wisdom that is evil, Versus the wisdom that is spiritual, the wisdom that is from above, the wisdom that is from God, who is the source of wisdom himself. You know, wisdom of this age is very temporal, very here and now, very what's going to benefit me and get my needs met, what's going to make me feel better, let's work towards that end. Whereas we know that the Bible gives us a different worldview, and we hear from the scriptures what our real end is to be. It's to be the glory of God, it's to be on his mission, it's to be expanding his kingdom. And so, you know, we have just the the beautiful revelation of his will in the scriptures. Scriptures uh, given to us who believe. And so we have Paul lay out in this fresh chapter, whereas the last chapter we had the message and the messengers of the gospel, that the message is foolish to those that are perishing, but it's the power of God to we who are being saved. We have the messengers who are not mighty, not eloquent in word and in speech and in appearance, but rather weak and base and ridiculous. And how could we ever be used? And the reason that God has chosen that to be his message and us to be his messengers is found there in verse um, verse 29 of chapter 1, that no flesh would glory in his presence so that anyone who would boast wouldn't be in themselves or their just incredible talents and abilities, they'd boast in God that God would get all the glory. And so we had the message and the messengers in chapter one, and now we see the method and the message and the mindset given to Christians here in this chapter. And so in verse one, we have the method of Paul laid out, the method of his ministry. He says in verse one, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. So two things I did not bring to the table when I stepped out onto the mission field or when I went into that ministry, when I became a children's ministry helper or teacher, or when I came onto the worship team or when I volunteered in the sound booth, you know, it wasn't my own strength that I was confident in. 
Paul says, when I became a missionary, when I was sent out into uh, the, the world, um, I did not come with this excellent speech ability, you know, uh, uh, resting in my degree in speech communications from, you know, Jerusalem or whatever it might have been. And I didn't come resting in this excellence of wisdom. Now, he had a beautiful speech talent and he had incredible wisdom but he didn't come putting his stock in that. In fact, we're going to see in just a little bit, he, he decided that he was not going to put his stock into that. And we recall Acts chapter 18, where Paul was on his missionary journey. He'd come down from Athens right after preaching the resurrection of Christ on Mars Hill. And everyone would listen to him there because they were all philosophers and they did nothing all day but just hear some new thing. And so they heard him out and he preached the message of the cross. He preached the good news of the gospel. And when he got to that subject of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, being the first fruits of all of us who will rise from the dead, they laughed at him and they, you know, they, they in a sense, laughed him out of Mars Hill. They laughed him off of this, this place of philosophy. They thought that was ridiculous. A few people were saved, but overall he was rejected there. And so he ended up going south toward Corinth, where he found himself a husband and wife team named Aquila and Priscilla, and he began to mend tents, and he was a tent maker there. Nothing glamorous about that life. You know, he's dealing with animal skins and fabrics and sewing machines, and, and uh, it was nothing in his outer appearance that made, it, you know, made them want to follow him. You know, really, he's taken the example of Christ into consideration. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Our God, our Messiah, came as a suffering servant. There wasn't anything on the outside, some beautiful appearance and golden locks, you know, that he just waved in the wind as he rode on his white stallion. You know, it wasn't the outward mighty appearance of Jesus, but it was his humility, his being a suffering servant, his obvious love in laying his life down for his creation that drew men to him. And so there in Corinth, Paul's just a tent maker. He'd go and he'd reason daily in the synagogues and Jews and the Greeks would have him reason. And, uh, and he persuaded some until finally a sect of Jews stood up and blasphemed God because of the message of the cross. They considered it to be foolishness and they drug Paul in uh, after some time. They drug him into the Supreme Court of Corinth. And made a case against him. We know that that came to nothing by God's provision. But you see, even in Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 18 to the Corinthians, he didn't come with his external power, external might, resting in his own personal talent sets as he declared the testimony of God. And that was his methodology. Also within his methodology was the message he determined to preach. In verse 2, he says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, here he is ministering in an area of Grecian culture that was known for its vast wise men and philosophers. He would be in the synagogues, in the marketplaces, in the judgment halls, in the prisons, in the crowded cities. And Paul didn't use fleshly tools to communicate the gospel. He didn't try to, you know, come up with some kind of special tact to get in there. But he determined what he would preach was the message of the cross. Christ and him crucified. Now, we know that Paul knew a lot of other things 
besides Christ and him crucified. He knew a lot of different doctrines and theologies, but he brought it and he made it in its most basic, powerful form, the message of the cross and the gospel. It wasn't that Paul wasn't a wise man, and it wasn't that he wasn't a philosopher. He, he was those things. He could probably hold his own against those of the world. But it, he recognized where the power really was. It wasn't in his own you know, fleshly philosophies. It was in the message of the cross. <clears throat> One man said that Paul might, if he wanted to, have used an ornate st style since he had studied secular learning in Tarsus of Cilicia. Tarsus of Cilicia was what Strabo preferred to as the school of philosophy over that of Athens or Alexandria. Those were like the big learning hubs of the day. Alexandria having the largest library that the world had known and yet Strabo says, you know what, this, this teacher that Paul learned under up in Tarsus, that's where you want to go for your education. So we have this guy who, who really in his flesh, before he was saved, he had all these outward fleshly qualifications. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that's not where the power is at. It's not where the power lies. The power is in the message of the gospel spoken forth under the power of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> he says, I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He draws a line in the, in the sand and makes a stand and says, this is what I will do. Even though all of my counselors say, Paul, just drop the cross stuff, drop the sin stuff, drop the, um, you know, the depravity stuff, drop the, and just, you know, bring out the comedy you know, bring out the, the philosophy, bring out the wisdom of this world and, and let that be what draws people in. And Paul says, I won't have it. I won't have it. I determine that this is what I will know. And so often pastors, they do resort to different things. They put their confidence in other things. They put their confidence in their education. They put their confidence in their heritage and their upbringing. And, you know, Paul had all those things. Read Philippians chapter three. He says, man, I was I had it in terms of what religion would say you needed. We're not to put our stock in those things. When we put our stock and our confidence and our pride in those things, Jesus is pushed out of the way. Jesus no longer is the center of attention, but rather the man is. <clears throat> the story is told of an old, beautiful church <clears throat> that was complete with ancient stones and just beautiful stained glass windows. Uh, uh, one specifically was behind the pulpit. This stained glass windows, uh, window uh, featured this picture of Jesus on the cross. And every Sunday, the light would just shine down in magnificence uh, and just light up the whole room. But one Sunday in this sanctuary, uh, there was a substitute preacher that came and filled the pulpit. The normal preacher was a tall man, you know, filling the entire pulpit. But this week, the fill-in was a short man who could barely see over the stand. And in the crowd was a normal little girl who was always in the service and always in the sanctuary, and she was accustomed to fidgeting during the sermons. And the story is told of her saying to her mother, where's the much taller pastor? He usually blocks out Jesus and keeps the light from shining into my eyes. And you know what? Being the tall guy that has to have a stand for his pulpit, you know, that's a little convicting to me. I don't want to be the pastor that would be so, you know, so big in all of his things. And, and I've got to watch myself. 
I can't put my trust in a fun personality or, or being funny or having the comedy in the service. Don't rest in that. I can't rest in that. I don't want to rest in that. I want to know Jesus Christ and him crucified lest I block Jesus from coming in and keep the light from coming into your eyes. I want the light to come into your eyes. I want Jesus to be the center. Every preacher needs to be careful lest he get in the way of the gospel. And I'm not talking full-time ministry preachers. I'm talking of you guys that would go out into the world to herald the gospel in your work and in your school and in wherever it's at. Watch it. Don't, don't put your confidence in yourself. Don't trust in your cute little metaphors and your quaint little this and that. Hey, rest in Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is where the power is. And especially as I was studying this week, I, just, I was just very convicted. I was like, Lord, just tone me down or don't let me get in the way. And I just, I confess my confidence not in any little cute thing I can do or this or that. It's in you, Lord. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the center of all of our teaching and all of our preaching should always be the gospel. Should always be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ-centered preaching. It keeps him in the center. It keeps him as the focus. One of my um, pastor friends, uh, one of my mentors growing up, his name is John Wang. We were on staff together, and there was John Wang and Rory Rogers, and he's Korean. It's Huang, but uh, and Chris Cross, who's speaking at our retreat, Anna Tom Jones. So you know, just a whole lot of <clears throat> washed-up movie stars and singers on staff there. But uh, John Wang yesterday retweeted Charles Spurgeon's quote. And yes, Charles Spurgeon does have a Twitter account. You might want to follow him. He's been dead for 150 years. But, um, and he quotes Spurgeon and he says, You will never glory in God till, first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. And that's where Paul had come by, his, by this time in, in Ephesus as he writes to the Corinthians. God had just emptied Paul of himself. In fact, he says that in Philippians chapter three, I count all of my list of qualifications and physical outward strengths as rubbish. It's just rubbish that I might know him. Lord, empty us of ourselves that we could be useful out in the mission field. A simple message Paul took, Jesus Christ and him crucified that you can be forgiven, that you can have your sins blotted out, that the Lord would remember them no more. You can have relationship with God again and experience him daily. Why nothing but Christ crucified? One man said, it's a grand, grand and starry is the world above, but grander is the cross. There's something so grand about the cross and speaking it out to a perishing world. Why nothing but Christ crucified? First of all, because it's at the cross that we see the highest revelation of God's love for men. Isn't that what you're trying to get across to the perishing out there? That they are loved, that the God of the universe loves them. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that's the tangible demonstration of the love of God. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want an experiment? You want a demonstration? You want a sign of God's love? God doesn't love me. Hey, anytime you're thinking that, you look to the cross. 
You look to the cross and it's a slap in your face. It's a wake-up call. How dare you say God doesn't love you? Look at the cross where God himself was brutally slaughtered so that he could be with you. That's a demonstration of God's love. So why preach Christ and him crucified and keep it simple? Because it's not simple. It's high and it's lofty. It shows the love of God. Secondly, the cross shows the most thrilling demonstration of the wickedness of humanity. So as you're preaching with somebody, you discuss the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to be slaughtered? Because you are absolutely wicked. If there was some way, if there was any other way that you could make it on your own and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just really try to be a good person, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. How, how serious is sin? Well, you look at the whole Old Testament and what, what was needed to even cover over sins? Blood. Slaughtered animals by the thousands. Every different type of animal. Doves and turtle doves and calves and bulls and goats and sheep. Slaughtered. All foreshadowing the great slaughter of the Son of God. The lamb that be slain for the sins of the world. How wicked was your sin? How bad was it? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Slaughtered there for you. The cross is the proper method to convert men into any community or in any community, Charles Hodge says, whether they're Christian or pagan, it's to preach or set forth the truth concerning the person and work of Christ. Do you want to have an effective ministry in Prineville? Do you want to be part of this harvest that the Lord is sending out workers into the harvest field? The effective method is what Paul says here in verse 2. Just know Christ and him crucified. Just tell people that Christ was crucified so that their sins could be forgiven. It's effective. That's why Paul did it. <clears throat> Philosophy, fourth reason, why the cross? Why only the cross? Because philosophy, the very thing that the Corinthians wanted in their flesh, they want to hear philosophy. The, the Athenians, they want to hear some new thing. Let me hear it. It would have only reached the cultured. When you go out and speak a bunch of philosophy, you're just really reaching the people who can kind of get philosophy. Other people, it's just so far over their head. They just, the message of the cross, it's simple. You've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Whoever will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, repent of their sin, will be saved. So philosophy, it just reaches the culture. A plea for the oppressed would have only reached the patriotic. But the cross, one man said, commands universal attention for it touches the universal want. Fifth reason, why the cross only? Because sin is the source of all of the world's ills. Everything bad in this world, it's because of sin. And we should call it that. Okay? People need to be told that you've rebelled against God. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You've missed the mark. You've rebelled against God. 
And because of that, that's why there's war. That's why there's cancer. That's why there's divorce. That's why there's single moms. That's why this and that and this and that. It's sin. It's sin and sin. And what is the remedy for sin? The cross. The blood of Jesus. The atonement. The propitiation. That we would be bought with the price. That we would have our sins taken off of us and imputed unto Jesus. And have his goodness and righteousness placed on us. We'd be fulfilled filled with the Holy Spirit and given power to conquer sin and to say no to sin, the cross is the answer to all the world's ills. Paul wanted men to forsake their sins. And what would make you hate evil any more than seeing Jesus pinned to a cross? When you get a glimpse of the Son of God nailed to a tree, and you get it, we get it. I mean, the Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who's nailed to a tree. It ain't right to be pinned to a tree. Even some shows nowadays, you know, the wicked men coming in and raiding the villages or whatever, they take a young boy or something and they nail him to a barn or they nail him to a shed or they nail him to a tree. That isn't right. That's horrible. I mean, everyone knows that. And when you see the Son of God nailed to the tree in your place, it makes you hate evil, causes you to hate sin. Paul had in Christ crucified a subject equal to his object. The objective of having men leave their sin and follow after Christ. This is the subject of the cross. It's it's the same for every man's case whether it was clear back in Paul's day or in Charles Spurgeon's day in the 1800s or in Billy Graham's days in the 1940s up to today or in our day today. It's the same for every man. The subject message of the cross is powerful. But the temptation is to leave that and to become brilliant on the outside. Tickle ears. Be seeker friendly so that you can get the numbers We'd be brilliant, but not saving in that case. And the story is told of Sir Astley Paston Cooper, who was a surgeon over in England uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And he took a trip over to Paris, France. And while he was in Paris, he met with another uh, surgeon who was the head surgeon of France. And this guy, the French guy, asked the British guy, How many times had he performed this certain wonderful feat of surgery? I don't know what it was exactly, but this guy specialized in like hernias and down in that region, right? And there was this method of like, of of fixing them. And the French guy, how many times have you done this certain wonderful feat of surgery? Cooper said he performed the operation 13 times. To which the French guy replied, ah, but monsieur, or monsieur, I don't know, no French here. Uh, I have done this 160 times. How many times did you save a life? The British man said, I have saved 11 out of the 13. The French guy said, I've lost all of them. (laughs) But the operation was very brilliant. And that's what happens today is is men from the pulpit and men in their ministries, they tend to just become brilliant displays of show and theatrical presentation in order to gather the multitude. But there's no substance, there's no gospel, and everyone dies. 
There's no salvation. There's no souls won. Not a popular thing to call people sinners with no hope in themselves to confront their pride and say, you can't do it on your own. You're wicked and you failed and you've insulted God. But God has done it. And he says, rest in me. Hurts your pride, I know, I get it. But let your pride be hurt so that you might be saved. Not a lot of people are coming out for that message. (laughs) All right? So, good lesson for us. Charles Spurgeon said, I think I can honestly say that when I've had something come to me rather than fine, a nice rare oratical bit, and I think I could do it, I think if I tried, I might say something very fine, I have pulled it out of my mouth and flung it away that I might not take away the attention of any hearer from Christ crucified. Here's a sword, says one, and it has a a handsome scabbard. Spurgeon says, no, we pull off that handsome scabbard and we throw it off to some old rag and bone dealer. We use nothing but the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. When that does not save men, then men will be lost. We know nothing equal to it for the keenness of its edge, for the force with which it slays. It's a strange sword. With its edge, it kills, and with its back, it heals. That's the word of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Strange sword. With its edge, it kills, and with its back, it heals. Verse 3, Paul goes on to say, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Can you picture Paul like that? Do you ever picture Paul like that? Weak, fear, and trembling. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says that he has this treasure of the gospel in an earthen vessel. Or you might know it from the 1990s Christian rock band, Jars of Clay, right? (laughs) Jars of Clay. We have this treasure in Jars of Clay. Man, we are fragile. We We can be broken so easily. Charles Spurgeon says, man, after I would preach on a Sunday morning, I felt like a clay pot that a child could just shatter. We have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. That no flesh may glory in his presence, 129 says. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, all of the Corinthians would talk about Paul behind his back. They thought him to be kind of a weak guy. They said his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Were you guys here last week and you heard the the historical appearance, what Paul looked like according to a a first century historical document? That that Paul was a a short guy, kind of hunched back and bent over with a big hooked nose and a paunch belly and a high and whining voice and poor eyesight, you know? Is that someone you want to listen to, you know? Uh, you know, that, that was Paul. And so you can picture the Corinthians that are like, man, his letters, man, you read those, and you're like, oh gosh, Paul's coming for us. And they're like, do you remember when he was here? You know? Not a whole lot on the outside that, you know, is that impressive, not to mention all of the, the beatings and stripes that his body had taken. And Paul says, man, when I was with you in Corinth, you remember when that mob drug us to the Supreme Court? I thought we were doomed. I thought we were dead there. Paul had terrible fear. Literally, it means he was quaking in fear. 
But you remember that it was there in Acts chapter 18 when he was in Corinth that Jesus appeared to Paul in a dream and said, you don't need to be afraid. No one will harm you. I've got a lot of people in Corinth that'll defend you, that'll stand up for you, that'll stand up for Jesus. Paul says, man, you remember. You remember when I was weak. The Phillips translation of this verse says, as a matter of fact, I myself was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather shaky. Verse four here, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith, verse five, should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul saw no place for calculated theatrics or techniques to manipulate a crowd to response. Peter would tell us in 2 Peter 1.16, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They didn't make up fables. They, didn't make, they just said the testimony. They testified of what they'd seen and what they'd witnessed with their eyes. And that's what was powerful. Paul would say, I'm not like so many who are out there peddling the gospel. And if you've watched Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman or the Apple Dumpling Gang, you know, and you just pictured the peddlers, you know, where they've got the, the old wagons, like gypsy almost, you know, and the pots and pans on the side and the medicine that they'll, you know, bust out. Doctor, what's the cure-all? You know, all that, the peddlers, you know what it is. And there's a lot of Christians out there or so-called Christians, maybe even wolves, that are peddling the gospel for money, for dishonest gain. They see the message of the cross as an opportunity to get their pockets full of money. Paul says, we aren't like that. We aren't manipulating. We aren't um, even resting in persuasive words to get the job done. Barclay says that Paul was an ambassador, not a salesman. And what's your approach to your mission field that God has you on? Are you a salesman? You know, got your hair slicked back and your old suit on and you're like, hey, I've got a deal for you. You know, not that old suits and slicked hair, it's kind of in actually. Um, but, you know, is that what you're resting in? Are you an ambassador or are you a, a salesman of the gospel? Taking all that in, Paul understood he didn't want to cater to what the audience in Corinth wanted. And they wanted wisdom of the world and vain philosophies of men. William Barclay also said, Corinth put a premium on the veneer of false rhetoric and thin thinking. Didn't come with those things, but rather, don't you love the end of verse four? But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. This is a life verse for me. <laughs> this is something every Sunday morning I spend, my face, spend time on my knees and you hear me pray it from the pulpit quite frequently as well. It's not about me. It's not about the exact sentence structure here today but lord let today be a demonstration of your spirit and of your power and i'm not talking personality and i'm not talking passion i'm talking the holy spirit going forth with his word and going into your heart like a surgeon's scalpel and trimming away the fat convincing you and convicting you of your sin that you might repent and be made right with god Romans 15, Paul says he came in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. 
In chapter 4, we'll see Paul say here in 1 Corinthians that the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Again, what are you resting in in your ministry? Are you resting in words? Remember Moses. When he was called to go to Pharaoh, he said, I just, I have faulty speech. I can't talk good. And God said, who made your mouth? He told Jeremiah, I'll put my words in your mouth. I'll be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. I'll be with you, Gideon. I'll be with you. Rest in that. Rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.16, again, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance. Rest in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus foretold the day of Pentecost and he said, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father. And when you're there, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he has come upon you, you will receive power to be witnesses. You will receive power to be martyrs. And you see the disciples, they're waiting and they receive power. And immediately that very day, they witness and Peter stands up and, can, and testifies of Christ and thousands of people are saved. Peter, trembling, foot in mouth, Peter, an evangelist, leading thousands to Christ because of the Holy Spirit, because of his power. And so we're going to close, can you believe it? 20 after, which is our goal. Uh, we're going to close today just uh, with a, a, a worship song about spirit of the living God falling fresh on us. That he would melt us, that he would mold us, that he would fill us, and that he would use us. Keep in mind that in, that in the midst of this journey of being laborers, being used to go out into the harvest field and gather the threshes, gather the, the bundles of wheat that are men's souls. It's not by men's wisdom, lest the glory would be put on man. It's by the wisdom of God. Let's stand. And we're going to sing at acapella this morning. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me Mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, Fall afresh on me, melt me, mold me, fill me, use me, Spirit of the living God. 
flesh on me. We're going to sing it one more time, just a prayer here. Lord, it's the day of Pentecost, God. It's just a day that in history we remember the promise of the Father coming and just coming upon the disciples. Soon after Acts chapter 2, they would be arrested and imprisoned and threatened. You quit talking about Jesus. And as they were released from jail, they went back to their houses and they had a prayer meeting and they didn't pray that the persecution would stop, but they prayed that they would be given power and strength to testify in the midst of persecution. And so Lord, as it's the national day of prayer for the persecuted church, even today, men and women will be killed for you. Lord, would you empower them, give them strength to go through the persecution, to, to die today. Lord, for us, would you give us power to live today, to live for you? One church father said that that's really how you know who the martyrs are gonna be. It's those who are living now for the kingdom. And so, Lord, on this day of Pentecost, as we remember the persecuted church, as we remember the promise of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, and we see throughout the book of Acts that he would just continually fill and continually overflow and continually empower. Lord, afresh today, here we are on the Lord's day, crying out for power. Thank you for the promise of the Father, Lord. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I lead by example today by just saying, God, forgive me for any time I've rested in a, 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 a sentence well-structured or a joke to be the, that'll get their attention, or a quote, or just anything of this world, Lord. Any manipulative tactic, God, that would, oh, that'll save souls. Lord, we repent of that. Lord, restore in us a passion for the message of the cross, that we would be like Paul and determine, right now, today, I determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, to know the message of the gospel. And Lord, we believe that you'll give us fruit with messages like that. Expand your kingdom here in Prineville this week, God. Send out your messengers. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.